Our passage today is, is Mark 9, 1 through 13, and it's found on page 1074 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up the mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Be seated. About a decade ago, flat. Uh, High-definition TVs um, became the, all the craze, and, and everyone began to replace their old-school tube televisions with them, and, and uh, my dad decided to make that transition as well, and goes down to the store and buys one of these uh, new flat screen, at that point they were still, still kind of thick, but uh, flat screen HD TVs, and he hooks, goes home and hooks it up, and I was... I was uh, uh, around one evening and he calls and says, uh, hey, I need you to come look at this TV, man. This thing's amazing. You wouldn't believe how good the picture is on this thing. I mean, the colors are so bright and the, 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 the clarity is so sharp and it, it just looks so good. And, and you just, you're just not going to believe it, how good this, this TV looks. And, and dad's, a, dad's a little bit technologically challenged. So there's a lesson here for the younger folks in the room. Help mom and dad out. Um, they didn't grow up in the technology age that you did. And so... You can, you can help them out. And so dad says, hey, you know, you got to come see this TV. So I go and I, I look and, you know, it looks better than what his old one looked, but it still didn't look right. And so I, I asked dad, you know, what, how did you hook this up? You know, I just took the, you know, the, the TV antenna and just the coax, just plugged it in, the VCR, just plugged it in. I said, dad, you, uh, you realize that you're not watching HD. You're not watching high definition. This is just standard definition on a, on a new TV because you don't have it hooked up to an HD source. And so what you're seeing is actually just standard definition on a new TV. He had not actually even experienced HD yet. 
But he thought he had. He thought he had seen it. He thought he had been, been just blown away with how awesome this new TV was, when in reality, he, he hadn't seen anything yet. And uh, I, I thought about that this morning as I was studying our text. Uh, the disciples, they've, they've been learning a lot about Christ. They've seen him do some incredible things. And they think that they've seen, uh, they've seen it all when it comes to the impressive nature of Jesus Christ. They've, they've seen him heal people and raise people from the dead. They, they think they've seen it. And yet this morning, we learn in our text that they've seen nothing yet. I mean, what they see in the text today completely turns everything upside down on its head. And uh, our central text you've heard read, Mark, Mark 9, 1 through 13, and we're going to get to that. I promise you we'll get back to it, but I want to first trace for us, and I don't do this often, but I want to trace for us a theme through the Old Testament because it builds to this moment. And this theme is the glory of God. We see it throughout the Old Testament, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at those little snapshots of the Old Testament, and then we'll settle down in Mark chapter 9 and feast upon the glory of God that we see there in the text. But uh, the, the glory of God is a mega theme of the Bible. 300 plus times mentioned in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this idea of God's glory. Uh, the glory of God is, is, an, is an attribute of who, of who God is. It's, it's, it's who God's character is. It's who he is in his essence. And so it's difficult for us to talk about God's glory um, uh, rightly because of the limitation of human language. We, just, we don't have words to describe what it means that God is glorious. We can attempt and we can know truly because the Bible's revealed God to us as he would want us to know him. We can know truly, but it's hard for us to know fully. We won't know fully until we're in his presence. Um, but we do, from the scriptures, we know the glory of God speaks to his splendor, to his, his beauty, to his magnificence, his radiance. Uh, the heaviness and weightiness of God. Uh, it speaks to his prominence and preeminence. It speaks to his luminescence, the fact that there's light emanating from him, his splendor and majesty, his holiness, his purity, his worthiness, his superiority. All of these things go into describing what it means that God is glorious. But what we learn is that God's glory in the Old, Te in the Old Testament was occasionally and situationally revealed to the people of God. At different times in the Old Testament, God pulled back the curtain, if you will, to allow his people, Israel, to see some glimpse of or some uh, shadow of his glory so they might know him better and know him more. And we'll trace a few of those times. Uh, you remember as the, as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, they've been in slavery in Egypt. And as God leads his people uh, out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land, Exodus 13, um, we see that God shows up in a pillar of fire. And he's leading his people. They, they're following this cloud and fire. God's glory is there. They're seeing him. They're seeing something that God has pulled back the curtain and allowed them to see uh, so that they can experience him and know that it's him. And this continues throughout the book of Exodus, this pillar of fire. And then you get to Exodus 33. In Exodus 34, and Moses enjoys the glory of God as he's meeting with God on the mountain. He's, he's mediating between God, a holy God in heaven, and God's people on earth. And remember, God's people, uh, they, they grow rebellious. They're idolaters, and God is comforting Moses in his glory, in his majesty, in midst of a rebellious people. Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments that God's given him. He sees this idolatry. He shatters the first set of Ten Commandments. He goes back up on the mountain. He meets with God, and his face is literally radiating, physically radiating, because of the, the time he spent in the presence of God's glory. And it comforts him. 
We see that the glory of God meets with his people, particularly his servant Moses, but this continues in the Old Testament. We see it again and again. Exodus chapter 40. God gives the people of Israel a commandment to build a tabernacle. Uh, God's glory existed in association with this tabernacle. God's glory was there as the people worshipped him in the tabernacle. Remember, they're moving about. They're a nomadic people at this point. They're not in the promised land. And so God gave these instructions to, to build a portable church, if you will, a tent. That's what the tabernacle was. And we're told that God's glory filled that place, that he dwelt with them in the tabernacle as they moved throughout the wilderness, that he was with them. And that this tabernacle would be a connecting place between God in heaven and his people on earth. This is where he would meet them, in the tabernacle. And here's a lesson that we learn from this. And, and we, we'll see this throughout Israel's history and for us today. It's, a, it's an imp- important lesson for us. That when God shows up and people encounter the glory of God, worship is always connected. The appropriate response, the only response to when God is revealed is worship. We can't help but worship. And there's another, I guess, connected lesson there is that we don't make God glorious. Glorify your name, God. We make you glorious. No, we don't make God glorious. He is glory. He possesses glory. He reveals that to us, and we worship him in response. We see this happening in the, in the tabernacle. We see God's glory revealed there as he dwells with his people in a, in a portable church, in a, in a moving tent, and his glory is with them. But it continues. Chronicles chapter, our second Chronicles chapter 7. We see commands to build a temple. After entering the promised land, the people are in the land that God has told them that he would give them. And he's giving them now instructions. He gives the instructions to David to build a temple, a permanent place where there would be a fixed building, a, a, a fixed brick and mortar place where God's presence would dwell. His glory would meet with his people there. We see that Solomon builds the temple because David's a murderer. And so his son has to build it. And the temple serves, again, like the tabernacle, as this connecting place between God and his people. It's where they went to worship him, where they saw his glory and they they met with him. Worship happened there. God showed up there in glory and dwelt with his people. But it continues. We see glimpses of God's glory throughout the Old Testament. Other other, uh, manifestations of God's glory as he parts the Red Sea and, and allows the Israelites to cross through on dry ground and drowns Pharaoh's army. He's revealing himself in the burning bush where Moses is meeting with God and God says remove your sandals for you're standing on holy ground and he begins to talk to Moses through a bush that's on fire but it won't be consumed God's glory we're seeing glimpses we're seeing shadows of God's glory throughout the Old Testament but then you get to Ezekiel chapter 10 Ezekiel chapter 10 and chapter 11 and then you see it again in in 1 Samuel chapter 4 it's 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 in both and this incredible tragedy we see recounted to us that God's people are worshiping creation instead of the creator. They're involved in paganism and and idolatry. They're worshiping everything but the true and living God, and something tragic happens. The Bible tells us that God's glory departed. God's glory, his, his presence left. God left his people. His presence was removed. His glory was withdrawn. This, this word, Ichabod, God's glory departed. 600 years in Israel's history, for a 600-year season, God did not move. He didn't reveal His glory. He didn't show His glory to His people in the way that He had. He didn't give them His presence in the temple or the tabernacle where He would connect with them and meet with them. False worship in Israel's part replaced true worship. And Israel was just a shriveled up shell of a nation that it had been and that God intended it to be. 
And it stays this way through the close of the Old Testament. Our Old Testament, your Old Testament, closes with this really sad and tragic ending that, that Israel is in shambles and the glory of God has departed. He's not dwelling with them as he had. He's not speaking to them through the prophets as he had. His glory is not with them. But then, but then, if you have your Bibles, I know we were in Mark, but, but open up to Luke. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, this is going to be a very familiar passage to you. We've read it hundreds of times, I'm certain. But remember, the close of your Old Testament, God's glory departed. The 600-year period where God said uh, that that these these people of Israel were in a season of Ichabod, where God's glory had left. And then Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory, there's that word again, it shows up after 600 years of God's glory being departed. It comes to a screeching halt as the angels appear to shepherd boys on this first Christmas morning, and we read it so casually at Christmas time, but this was gigantic news for God's people. The glory of God that has been gone longer than we've been a nation here in America has returned to his people. God's glory is back. Continue reading. The the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. Right? So you can imagine. They're thrilled that this glory has returned. They've heard about it. Their great, 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 great grandparents had seen it, but his glory is here now. Why is that? Why is it here now? Is he, is he here to destroy us, to judge us, to condemn us? Will we live or will we die? Why has his glory decided to return now? You can imagine these questions racing through their hearts and minds as the angels announce his glory is returning. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The glory of Almighty Creator God is coming to earth. The same glory that our fathers saw in a pillar of fire. The same glory that our fathers saw radiating in Moses' face. The same glory that we hear about, that we've heard about from our ancestors that was present in the tabernacle and the temple. That glory is coming to earth in the form of a baby? How can this be? This was, this was incredible. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Why do they say this? Because he's glorious. And his glory is to be worshipped. They're praising God because that's what happens when the glory of God is present. His people encounter it and they praise him, they worship him. He is glorious. When his glory is revealed, the only appropriate response is worship. So don't miss what the angels are saying on this Christmas morning to these shepherd boys. Jesus is now the connecting place. It's no longer a tabernacle. It's no longer a temple. Jesus is the connecting place between God in heaven and people on earth. His glory, Jesus' glory, is is, is not just partially or temporarily uh, available or visible to the people as it was in the tabernacle or temple. The full glory of God dwelt in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the angels are saying. Yes, His glory is returning after these 600 years, but it's in a person. He's going to live among you. He's going to die for you, and He's going to raise again. So key for us, again, we're getting back to Mark. I promised you we would. Key for us is that the glory of God 
has returned to the people of God and the person of Jesus Christ. We see that theme throughout the Old Testament, God's glory. Then we see that announced in the birth of Christ, the glory of God returning to the people of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 9. I'll give you a bit of background. The disciples have been traveling with Jesus. They've seen him do incredible miracles. They've seen him demonstrate that he is truly God, that he is the Christ, that he is uh, the one, the anointed one of God. They've seen it in his authority to teach. They've seen it as an authority to, to raise people from the dead. And Jesus has been pouring his life into these 12 men. He's been, he's been equipping them and in, in, in discipling them to be sent out to preach this gospel. And two weeks ago, uh, last time I was here at Poplar Spring preaching, two weeks ago, Peter has this confession that is the, the pinnacle of the, the first part of Mark's gospel, the first act, if you will, if it were a play. And it's this confession that Jesus is the Christ. And then right after that confession, as soon as Peter says these words that are true, it's the first time we've seen it in, in, in the gospel that one of these men are rightly confessing that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Christ. Jesus follows up that confession by predicting his death and his resurrection. And they think that's absolutely absurd. That this one who we've seen raise people from the dead would actually himself die. That's unthinkable. But then Jesus follows up that claim by saying, kind of adding insult to injury, that if you're going to be my disciples, you too must take up this execution device, a cross, and follow me. That's what it looks like to be my follower. You follow me to death. Dying to yourself. And if they were already thinking he's crazy, he says this, and they think he's even more crazy. And then, without even a transition, remember, we've broken this up over a couple of weeks, but uh, Mark gives it to us as if it's just a continuation. Without even a transition, verse 1 of chapter 9, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in or with power. And now they're utterly confused. That. If they were already confused, now they're even more dumbfounded. And a lot of preachers and teachers try to talk about this verse and use it as like uh, helping people to understand the second coming of Jesus, like this is the rapture or something. Um, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Putting, that in, probably putting this verse in a context, he's talking to 12 disciples that are literally standing before him, and he says, there are some standing here who will not taste death. He's obviously those men are not still alive, so we're not talking about a, a second coming or the, the rapture taking place. These disciples are, are pondering what he means. What does he mean that some of us are not going to taste death and, until we, till we see the, the power of the kingdom of God? And then it continues, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Six days. Six days go by, and if, if you have kids, then you know the, uh, the, the figurative hornet's nest that Jesus is smacking by saying something like this, and then waiting six days to even give, a, give an idea of what he's talking about, right? This is what we tell Desmond, we're, we're going to meet me in Pawpaw's house in Louisiana for a visit. If we tell him that any more than like an hour before we leave, it's like nonstop, meet me in Pawpaw's house, meet me in Pawpaw's house for like a week. So we've learned you don't, you don't say things like that unless you're ready to deliver. And Jesus here waits six days after telling these disciples that. He tells, tells them that they're going to they're experience something incredible. He waits six days. And then you can imagine just the conversations. Day one, hey, John, man, you got any idea what he was talking about? What do you think he was talking about when he said we're going to see the kingdom of God and its power? Day two, 
hey, hey, ma'am, hey, Peter, I, I think it was me. I think I'm the one he was talking about. It's obviously I'm, I'm his beloved disciple, so I'm going to be one of the ones that gets, the, nah, man, I, I know it was me. I know it was me. He said something about the, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church. He's, he's talking about me. I'm going to get to see it day four, day five, on and on and on. And then he selects Peter, James, and John to go up the mountain. And we read that so casually, and we don't, we don't, we don't hear any weightiness in that, but they would have. When Peter, James, and John are selected and he says, hey, well, let's go to the mountain, they know something incredible is about to happen. I mean, think about it. Think about your Old Testaments. Think about what they would have known as their Bibles, their scriptures. Big things happen when God meets with people on mountains, right? The Ten Commandments were given on a mountain. Elijah and the prophets of Baal on a mountain. Abraham offering Isaac and the, and the ram in the bush on a mountain. The burial place of the patriarchs on a mountain. God does big things on mountains. And so he takes Peter and James and John and they head to the mountains. You can imagine the anticipation. You can imagine the excitement. Oh man, what, what, what are we going to see? What is he going to show us? Based on what we've seen about him already, we, we can't imagine what he's going to do. The expect, expectation for the encounter that they were about to have with God. I think we need that. I think we need that kind of expectation, church family. Just being a little bit transparent with you, I need that kind of expectation. When I get up in the morning and I go into a time where I'm in a quiet time with the Lord and His Word and in prayer, I need that kind of expectation that I'm about to meet with the God of the universe. and He's going to do incredible things because encountering Him is the gift. It is the blessing. Not that He would give us stuff, but that He gives us Himself. That when we meet together as a church in corporate worship, we're meeting as his bride. He's going to meet with us here. That we would have anticipation for that kind of a meeting. That we'd have expectation for what God's going to do in our midst when we're together worshiping him. We need that, church family. You can imagine that's the excitement they had. Then verse 2 and 3. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Again, it's been 600 years. Christ shows up on the scene as a baby born in a manger and is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is God's glory in human flesh, and the disciples have seen him do some pretty amazing things. They've been following him. They've watched him do miracles. They've watched him heal the sick and restore sight to the blind and raise the dead. But everything they know about Christ goes out the window in this moment. Everything's turned upside down. A transfigured here in the text simply means he's transformed. And this radical transformation that takes place before their very eyes reveals his true essence. It's an outward display. It's an outward and visible manifestation of how Christ existed from eternity past in his glory. His countenance changes. His clothes change. His, his face, his body is radiating glorious light. If you read the other Gospels, it's an incredible scene. In a brief moment, God allows them to see. Jesus pulls back the curtain and allows them to see his glorified state. Can you imagine this, the way that this changed their perspective? Can you imagine the way that this changed their lives? Can you imagine the way that this, I mean, even, even as John writes his gospel, John is one of the ones on the mountain, and he writes his gospel years later. John chapter 8, he's, he's quoting Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And John's writing that down for us to see and for us to read. And he's thinking back to this moment. He's like, yeah, guys, trust me, I saw it on the mountain. He is truly the light of the world. 
And, and then, and then you, you just have to believe that this is what was in his mind as he was pinning those words. He was writing that. This is how Jesus existed in eternity past and will exist in eternity future. Isaiah chapter 6 shows us that much. Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah gets a, a glimpse into the throne room. He gets to see a picture of what it's like. And it says that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the, the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Who was Isaiah seeing? He was seeing, seeing the Lord. He was seeing Jesus. The one who revealed himself on the mountain right here. How do we know that? Well, John tells us. Again, John was on the mountain. John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 41, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. How does John know? Because well, he saw the same thing. He's saying, hey, that thing that Isaiah was talking about in chapter 6, that, that was what we saw on the mountain. We got a glimpse of that. Yes, Jesus is fully human. But in that moment, he pulled back the curtain and allowed them to see the glory of God. We need to be careful in the way that we speak, speak of Christ. Yes, he was a, a human born to peasant parents in a, in a feed trough. But he's the glorious God of the universe. Verse 4. And there, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Ever wonder how I read these, these, these verses and I try to picture what it would have been like to have been there. And to been a part of that. And as I'm reading this, I just wondered... How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? Like, were they wearing name tags? Elijah. Moses. You know, they, they show up. They know it's Moses and Elijah. They didn't have photography back then, so somehow they knew it was Moses and Elijah. We have this incredible scene where these two guys that have been dead for hundreds of years are now standing before them, and they're talking with Jesus. You ever considered why it was these guys specifically, not someone else? I mean, they could have brought back mom or dad, or they could have... Anybody. Why, why these guys? Moses represents the law. Remember, the law was given to Moses. 600 commands in the Old Testament Moses wrote for the, the Israelite people. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. He's one of the greatest of the prophets. He represents those that, that were testifying and prophesying of Jesus' coming. So these guys were the highest guests of honor that could have been present, that could have showed up for a Jewish audience, apart from God himself, who's already there because obvious reasons. These were the highest guests of honor that could have been there. And the account teaches us that all of the prophets, that all of the law, that Moses and Elijah and all of the other patriarchs, all of the other prophets, they're all about Jesus. They're all pointing to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And here you see Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, they're reflecting the glory of God. In the Old Testament, they were reflecting the glory of God like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But here in these moments, in this account, the difference is that Jesus does not merely reflect the glory of God. He is the glory of God. That unlike Elijah and Moses, Jesus does not merely point to the glory of God like Elijah and Moses, but instead he is the glory of God. The glory of God emanates from him. And all of that is apparent as Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are standing on the mountain before them. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. That's an understatement. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I, I love Peter, right? Because Peter's so often uh, reminding me of myself. 
He's always opening his mouth when he shouldn't. He's always inserting his foot and saying something that he shouldn't. And here he speaks up. He's the spokesperson. Luke's gospel tells us that they were actually all falling asleep. That before this all occurred, they were all, their heads were heavy with sleep. They were just about to be dozing off. And the scene unfolds. Luke says that they become fully awake. I'm like, you think? I mean, you see this happen. You watch this encounter unfold. They're they're sitting up. They're wide-eyed. They're now awake. They're fully awake. Peter thinks he has this great idea, this great plan. You know, he thinks, uh, Jesus, this would be an incredible start to a really good small group, Right? We, we, uh, we, if we, if we come down the mountain, other people will want to join. It'll get too crowded. It'll get too many people, too, too populated. So this is a great small group. So instead, let's stay on the mountain. I'll go over to Cabela's and buy a few tents. And we'll, we'll come back and set those tents up. And we'll just stay here and have a little powwow with just us. And, and there's no need for flashlights because, Jesus, you could just do that Gloria thing again and, and light the place up. And, and, and Elijah, if we've got no food, that's no problem because I read about you and I heard that one time birds brought you food when you had no food. So that works out. And, and, and Moses, you can explain our theology to us. Tell us how this law thing works and explain that to us. Jesus, you can, you can teach us more about this resurrection stuff you've been talking about because we really want to know more about that. This is a great small group. Let's just stay right here on the mountain together. Nope. There's, there's a problem with Peter's plan. There's a problem with this idea. There's a problem with trying to sustain this mountaintop experience. Well, number one, to do so would be to live in the past. Maybe you've had an experience like that at church. Where, where, where you just, many, many years ago, you had this experience and you just want it to stay the same. Maybe you like the way that things used to be. And wish you could just go back to that. Maybe God did something amazing in your life at a, at a summer camp or at a VBS or on a mission trip and you wish you could just get back to that moment, get back to that mountaintop experience where you saw Jesus and you knew you had encountered him and you just want to go back to that. I'm not trying to diminish those great things that God did in our past. We should celebrate. We should be grateful for the way that God's moved in our past. We should be thankful for the heritage and legacy that has been left for us. The Christian a foundation that's been paved for us. But we can't live in them. We, we can't live for them. Why? Because it leads to, or it could lead to, having no concern for the lost and dying world around us. And that's what we see here. Later in this passage, we won't get here this week. We'll get to it next week. But later in this same passage, we meet a demon-possessed boy. He's at the foot of this mountain. He's at the bottom of this mountain waiting. And if Peter would have had his way, if Peter would have gotten to bring the tents up and set up shop and stay there with Jesus, then this this hell-bound young man possessed by a demon would have perished without Christ. Now, Peter doesn't know that at the moment, but Christ does. He's not intentionally condemning this young boy to hell because, because he wants to, but out of his selfishness, out of his desire for comfort, out of his desire to stay in the moment, to stay on the mountain, that's exactly what would happen. Friends, the greatest tragedy in America, the greatest tragedy in America is not that any man or woman would occupy the White House. The greatest tragedy in America is not that we would experience another Great Depression or economic decline or that gas prices would soar or that uh, homosexuality and the transgender movement would continue to grow. Those are not the greatest tragedies in America. The greatest tragedy in America is not even the, the murder and crime that we see on the news every night. 
Friends, the greatest tragedy in America is that we are possessors of the glory of Jesus Christ and we would keep it to ourselves. That we would know the greatest truth that Jesus Christ, this Christ that revealed himself on the mountain, gave his life for sinners and rose from the dead to conquer the grave. And we keep that news to ourselves, camped out on our mountains, experiencing the blessing of God, but hoarding it for ourselves. That's the greatest tragedy in America. God forbid that it would be said of our church of Poplar Spring. God forbid that it would be said of Matt James. I pray that God would not let us settle. He would not let us rest or grow comfortable with the lost and dying world around us. That he would awaken our hearts. He would wake us up and not let us be okay with camping out on our figurative mountains. Verse 7 and 8. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus only. At this, this is the point of everything that's happened. This is the point of everything that's transpired at this moment. Peter, James, and John have experienced true worship. Friends, you know that that's been the case when you look up and all you see is Jesus only. When the encounter that you've had makes everything else grow dim. Everything else is unimportant. Jesus only. The Father has spoken, the Son's glory has been displayed, and the people worshiped. They stood in silence and looked around and saw nothing but Jesus only. This is why they're on the mountain. The Father spoke and continued to confirm the deity of the Son. That Jesus wasn't just another man. He wasn't just a good man or a good teacher, a prophet. That he is the glory of God. He is God himself. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell The fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God says, this is my son. And he echoes what he said at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It doesn't matter, church family, at any given moment what you or I or the world around us says or thinks about Jesus. It matters what God the Father says. And he says, this is my glorious son. And then the father says, listen to him. Listen to him. Well, listen to him about what? (laughs) This talk about death and resurrection that he's been talking about? This this talk about the the cross and taking up our cross and following him? Listen to him about what? The father says, yes, quit with all your your thoughts and theories about who Jesus is. Quit with all your, your thoughts about him overthrowing Rome with military strength. Stop with all that and listen to him. He's telling you the most important thing you could ever know. Peter, James, and John. The same thing would be true for us today. Quit with all your preconceived ideas of God and heaven and, and Jesus and, and what, what uh, you know, the world has said about what heaven's going to be and what, who Jesus is. Stop with all that. All you have to do is listen to what he said. Listen to him. Why do we do that? We do it in his word. His word, it's shown us. It's shown us who he is. It's shown us our condition. That we're all rebels separated from God. It shows us our redemption. That Christ died on behalf of sinners. And that if we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in his finished work on the cross, we can have eternal life. So today, friend, listen to him. Hear the word of God. They heard it from a cloud. You hear it from your Bibles. Listen to him. Some of you will hear this and think, you know, I wish I just I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been on the mountain that day and God would have shown me this because if I would have been there, I would have believed it, right? 
Why? Because seeing is believing, right? If I, could have, if I could have witnessed this with my own eyes and heard this with my own ears, I would believe it. No, that's wrong. How do we know it's wrong? Well, Peter tells us. And remember, Peter's one of the ones that he was there. He did experience this. He did see this. What does Peter tell us? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice that born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were on the holy mountain. Peter's talking about this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he's pointing us back to this, and he's saying, guys, you can believe us because we were there. We're not making this stuff up. We saw it. If you're wondering who Jesus is, listen to us. We were there. But that's not all. Keep reading verse 19. And we have also a more sure word. More sure than what, Peter? More sure than Moses and Elijah showing up from the dead? Yeah. More sure than than Jesus transfiguring in glory before our very eyes? Yeah. More sure than the voice from God the Father from the cloud? Yes. More sure than all of that? Well, then what is this more sure word, Peter? Keep reading in verse 19. We also have a more sure word of prophecy to which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit so what is this more sure word of prophecy what is this more sure word that Peter says we have you're holding it You're scrolling through it. You're flipping through it. It's your Bible. The Word of God. Peter's saying this. Yes, we were on the holy mountain. We heard the voice from the cloud. We saw Jesus transfigured before our very eyes. We saw the sight. Yet, you should not envy our experience. Why? Because you have a more sure word. Your Bibles. It reveals God to you. It's complete. It is perfect. And it reveals God to us exactly as He intended. Your eyes can be deceiving. Your ears can be deceiving. The Word of God is even more sure than your own senses. You can trust it more than you trust your eyes and your ears. So real quick, and we're closing. Four quick points of application. What do we learn from this? What do we do with this? These 13 verses. Number one, Jesus Christ is God. That that sounds too simple. That sounds too elementary. But men and women have died in church history, in the early church, for proclaiming this truth, for making this claim, Jesus is God. And so when you're flipping through the TV in the evening and you come across the History Channel and some bozo is talking about Jesus of Nazareth and he's simply presenting him as a a mere man, a, a prophet, a teacher, if you come across another religion, even in our own community, that would say Jesus is just a mere man, know that they are dead wrong. He is God. That's what this is showing us. Number two, we see God's glory most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to speak about the glory of God, if we're going to pray that God would reveal his glory, if we're going to go around the world on mission for the sake of the glory of God, then we must realize that we see this glory most clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what you're praying for when you say, God, reveal your glory. God, let me know Christ. That's what we're saying. 
Number three. That glory, this glory that we're speaking of is most evident not only in the person of Jesus Christ, but most clearly seen in his death and resurrection. Here's the grace in all of this. Here's the grace in all of this glory we've been talking about. This same Jesus, this one that pulled back the curtain and allowed Peter, James, and John to experience this incredible sight would soon come down from this mountain and he would do some more ministry and then he would ascend another hill and he would ascend a Roman cross and he would be nailed to it and he would die so that he would pay the death penalty that we deserved. He would pay our penalty of sin. He would bear the wrath of God on behalf of us. He would be buried and he would raise again. Why? The glory of King Jesus. Not so that we get heaven. Yes, we get heaven. But we get Jesus. That's the glory that we see in the death and resurrection of Christ is that he is the king who's conquered the grave for his own name's sake. Number four, don't keep this to yourself. Tell someone about him. Next week, we'll see that Jesus and the disciples come down from the mountain and there's a world in need immediately when they come down the mountain. There's a, there's a young boy that needs Christ, desperately needs Christ. He has no hope. I could guarantee you that tomorrow you will cross paths with someone who is desperate and has no hope and needs Jesus. They may not be possessed by a demon like this young boy that we'll meet next week, but they desperately need Christ. They're headed to an eternity in hell apart from him. Will you share Jesus with them this week? Would you speak a word for Christ? Would you share your story? Say, Matt, I don't, I don't know how to share the gospel. I don't, I don't know if I would be saying the right things. You can tell them what he's done in your life. You can tell them that he's brought you from death to life. You can tell them that he's rescued you from a lifestyle of sin and he's given you eternal hope. Would you share him this week? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us clueless, that you've not left us ignorant of who you are, that you've not left us without hope. But time and time again in your word, you've shown us that you are truly God and that you came and died and rose from the dead to give us life. God, I pray that we would encounter you and that we would worship. That we would understand that worship is more than uh, just a, a song or a type of music that we sing or lifting our hands and, and shouting or singing. But that worship is an encounter with Jesus that leaves us absolutely in awe looking around and seeing nothing but Jesus only. So may we worship you now as we respond to the text. Would you draw us to yourself, Christ? It's in your name I pray, amen.